Hello coaches, welcome to another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mullins, ITA COO. Today I interview Dr. Timothy Baghurst, who is a professor of education and director of FSU Coach at Florida State University. He earned his doctorate in kinesiology from the University of Arkansas and has three additional graduate degrees achieved in three different countries. His research focuses on coaching education and development with an emphasis on coach health and well-being. In this podcast, we discuss a wide range of topics from coach mental health to the team integration of international student-athletes. This podcast is full of important insights and key takeaways, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Dr. Timothy Baghurst, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, there's uh, so many, so many different topics we could get in today. I'll get into some of the research that you've uh, you've been doing over the last few decades, and and uh, I'll properly introduce you. Um, but we don't need to necessarily get into all your background here. Really, just want to get into the questions and get as much out of your brain into our our coach's brain as as soon as possible. So, with you've worked with coaches from a multitude of sports. What are maybe the top two common challenges coaches face regardless of the level regardless of the division or the sport yeah way to start with a loaded question right off the bat thanks for that warning uh dave um it it is a good question and we can take many different perspectives i think for one if we're looking at particularly in the u.s uh, low pay is a huge problem Mm -hmm. and with that low pay comes limited training. I think if you put those two in perspective, if we could solve low pay, if we could genuinely pay coaches well, and, and I'm not talking about tennis coaches who you know, maybe have made it to the big time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the division two, the division three coach, or even the assistant coach who is scraping together a living to do what they love. And then you ask them, well, you need professional development. You need to get better at what you do. And they're having to, to, to do lessons on the side in order to pay the bills, et cetera. You don't have time for that. Oh, by the way, you're supposed to pay for that training yourself with the money that you don't make. Those to me are two really, really big issues that I think if we're, we're solved would help to resolve some of the other issues that occur, occur such as, uh, especially at at the moment, topics like mental health Mm -hmm. of coaches and athletes. Well, is that a big topic? Yes. Is it a problem for coaches? Yes. But I think with better training, coaches and athletes would be better served. And with that training, well, we need funding to do that. So there's a little bit of a circular argument going on here. But for me, the two big ones are or making sure that coaches are well paid for what they do and and ensuring that they're well trained to do what they do. And have you seen a greater investment as the pay scale goes up? Those coaches that are making, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars a year, are, are you necessarily seeing them join your program, interested in some of the research you're doing? Um, or... Yeah, how, how might you parse out that? Or I would say, research? <laughs> yeah, I would. And for those who, who don't know, we, we have an online master's in coaching at Florida State University. It's two years old, and that's what you're referring to. The answer to that is it, there's no correlation between how much somebody earns and whether they get 
they, they enroll in our program. We have students from all different levels from volunteer coach up to, to D1 head coaches. It, it has to do with the intrinsic motivation and the desire to get better. Are those making a quarter million a year less likely to do our, our program? I would argue yes, because, well, because maybe they think they've made it and that they don't need it anymore. And I think that's a wrong philosophy. I think if you are at that stage, that doesn't mean you can't improve. I mean, Dave, I've got, I've got five degrees. I have the job I love. I, I direct a center for coaching education. That doesn't mean I can just put my feet up and say, well, I don't need to learn anymore. I already know it. That's, that's foolish thinking. Right. And so even I am looking for ways to get better. I did a, a training program over the last year because I can be a better at what I do. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge for those who are in, in your respects have, have made it is to keep that hunger for professional development. Some of the younger coaches may see it as an opportunity to get that upper job. Well, if I get this master's, I'll be more qualified than the other person that's applying. Or if I get this master's, I'll be better at what I do, which will make me more successful. Therefore, I'll get that job down the road. So yeah, most of them tend to be mid-level coaches, but we do get some high-level coaches in there. And we also get some coaches in there who have no ambitions on a salary scale. They're they're going, to, they're going to do it on the side for fun in their community because they love it. So it really comes down to intrinsic motivation rather than the, the, the need for financial gain. Yeah, and, and uh, we've seen the same thing in the educational programs that we've been putting out here the last couple of years. You just see a, a whole wide range of coaches um, at all different levels of the, the game, uh, different levels of experience, and, and it's, uh, it's always fun for me to see those more experienced coaches join those education and I love it and for them to give back as well to the younger coaches who they're interacting with. But um, you've published over a hundred peer reviewed articles, which blows my mind, but can you maybe share one or two articles that really challenged your thinking or assumptions on a particular topic as it relates to coaching? Is there anything that really surprised you or stood out over the, all that research that you've done? Yeah, you're killing me. You're killing me with these unprompted questions. Uh, <laughs> I have to think back now. There's there's a couple that that do stand out. Um, one of them in particular, I wasn't the architect of this study, but there was there was a gentleman who studied the physical activity levels of of kids, pre adolescents, right, five six years old, and then ten years later, twelve years later, went back and found them in high schools. Hmm. and studied them again and measured them again and and looked at what kind of physical activity had they been doing during the course of that that um 10 years 12 years and and what was really interesting and i'm paraphrasing this very badly without pulling out the actual article i'd be happy to share it with anybody what he found was that the kids in those five six seven year old kids if they were learning sport-based skills, they had higher levels of fitness in high school. The kids that were learning physical activity skills, such as um, running, 
you know, basic skills that, that you need for physical activity, their actual physical activity levels were lower in high school. Hmm. And, and the argument for this is, and we see this in physical education a lot where we, we teach fitness, right? Health and fitness, health and fitness, you know, get your 30 minutes on a treadmill, et cetera. And what, what we found was if we teach skills, if we teach tennis skills, if we teach soccer skills, et cetera, in youth, they're more likely to stay active throughout their adolescence than if we just teach them to be physically active. Now that, that really hit home because there's a real push in our society for, for health and fitness. Well, health and fitness, I would argue then is a byproduct of participating in physical activity in sports, lifelong sports. Tennis is one of those. Mm. Um, that, that really stood out for me. And then another one was done by a, a doc student of mine and notice none of these are my studies. Um, he, he investigated uh, stress and burnout in collegiate swimming coaches. And long story short, yes, coaches experience stress and burnout. It's something I speak on a lot. And what we found out though, which was interesting, Division one and division two were compared, and we expected to see division one experiencing higher levels than division two. We actually didn't find that. We found that they were about equal levels of stress. And what we found was what stressed them was different based on the level they were coaching. Hmm. For example, if you think win-loss might be more important in division one, but in division two, you're booking hotels. Whereas in division one, it might be taken care of for you. And so the time management might be an issue or less time at home with your kids. And so we found that very interesting in that, look, coaches are stressed. They experience stress. It doesn't matter what level you're at. It's just different. The type of stress you experience may differ based on the environment that you're in. So those were two that, that I think really stood out as, whoa, this is important to know. Yeah. And, and on that stress and, and burnout topic, how, and again, we go in lots of different directions here, but what is some of the advice that you are providing to coaches? If a coach comes to you, it's the end of the season, they're really stressed out or middle of season, whatever it is, let's say middle of the season, because I think when the season ends, you have a little bit of break, maybe your environment's changing, you're going out recruiting or you're teaching camps, but in the middle of the season when coaches are really struggling for whatever reason, how might you advise them to manage their stress for the rest of their season? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I just presented on this two nights ago. So I'm pulling up my PowerPoint and I'm going to read, I can't, I'm still building this. And what I mean is that these, this topic is organic. We learn as we, we learn more as we learn. I know that sounds inane, but when I started presenting on stress and burnout, I had the seven or eight things which I thought were very valuable for coaches to know. And I'm now up to 11 because I'm learning more about, ooh, yeah, I can see how that really affects a coach's stress and causes him to burn out, adding this in. So I'm just going to read them to you. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that, that answers the question quickly. Uh, number these are not in any kind of chronological order of importance, okay? Uh, personal exercise, uh, relaxing, re relaxation and religion, having, having some kind of base for you to, to work from that allows you to get away and just reset. 
Uh, number three, having a mentor or consultant to support you and provide you with advice. Number four, connecting with family, finding ways to spend time with family, even if you're traveling, even if you're recruiting, how can you get them involved in practices, et cetera? And number five, prioritizing your work and setting limits. We have a challenge as coaches. We tend to say yes too often. We have to say no, which is number six. How do you say no? If Dave, if you're my boss, if you're the athletic director and you're asking me to do another social event where I jump through some hoops for the benefit of some fundraising, probably feel obligated to say yes, but I don't want to say yes because that's my time with my family that week. How do I say no without saying no? So that's number six. Number seven, renewal and rest, making sure you actually take time off, have vacation time, et cetera. Number eight is delegate. Don't double down. We tend to, when things get hard, we tend to work harder rather than backing off. And, and then how do we delegate activities to other people so that we're not having to do everything? Because if you're like me, <laughs> I like to do things myself because I know they're, they're, they're done right. But that also adds more workload to me, which increases my stress levels. Number nine, having, getting and having a hobby, actually doing it. Number 10, continuing your education. The more you know, the more you know how to work uh, more effectively, more efficiently. Um, stop maybe some of those, those um, things that might cause stress. Uh, and then number 11, which I, was the one I most recently added, communicate more effectively. Poor communication can very much lead to stress levels. If you're a coach and you and the athlete are poorly communicating, maybe there's the wrong time, maybe it's the wrong words, maybe it's the wrong tone, that leads to stress because it can cause drama. And so if you are a poor communicator, that also affects your stress levels. So the answer is no one quick fix. Yep. You should just do this. It is Here's a series of things which you can evaluate yourself on at that point in the season and say, okay, how's my communication? How's my, uh, my relaxation? How's my, um, am I still engaged in my hobby? Am I connecting with my family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of a gate check just mm -hmm. to see, are you doing some or most of these? Hopefully off season, you get to do all of them, but that should allow you to at least think about it a little bit and then go, okay, I'm not really doing this very well. Something I need to try to do better as we go through the season. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that, that list. That's, that's very valuable to, to our coaches. And I know we're getting towards the end of the season, but by the time we publish this, but these are, are like I said, li lifelong. Uh, they can apply these, these rules at any time. And, and even during the summer, I mean, I, I know as a college coach, um, the summers seem to get squeezed more and more with, with uh, just especially as you get more resources and expectations on recruiting, et cetera. So um, a lot of these things need to be applied. Maybe the summers are, are even more stressful. I know running summer camps are, are very stressful. Yeah. So um, yeah, but okay. We're going to keep uh, jumping around from topic to topic. The next few, few questions are a little easier, I promise. But um, you, like we said, you oversee the master's uh, degree program in athletic coaching at Florida State. Uh, one of the courses you teach is philosophy and ethics of sport and coaching. And since our return to te the tennis courts post-COVID, 
we've seen actually a disturbing uptick in ethics and infractions issues. And, and, and maybe I'm just uh, very clued into this right now and I'm looking for it, but I'm seeing a lot more issues. Maybe just people are capturing them on, on video. They're looking for these things a little bit more. They're sharing them more, but it seems it's happening in a lot of sports, um, you know, regardless of, uh, again, level. It could be under 12, you know, girls soccer, with parents, maybe all, all the way up to the pro level. Um, how do you encourage your students at FSU to prioritize sportsmanship and run ethical programs? Yeah. That's why we have the class. Yeah. We've got to talk about this. We we have to recognize that, and I and I tell our students this as well, and this this applies to me as well. When we compete, and I, I coach, I coach a national team. Uh, I compete as well, uh, recreationally, but but at a high level. Well, we want to win. I want. I like winning, in in whatever I do. But there's a way to win, and there's also a way to win by lose. You know, there's a way to lose even when you win. Mm-hmm. And. Our, our students, I want them to be reflective of the choices they're making. When we compete or when we are out on the court, we represent more than ourselves. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that, whether we're athletes or whether we're coaches. We, we just focus on ourselves and we forget that we're wearing an emblem on our shirt that represents potentially hundreds of thousands if not millions of people who've passed through mm. passed through that those doors of that university or college or even representing the state uh, in some way as well we represent our family uh, you know we carry sometimes uh, you know not necessarily in college but we carry our last name on our jersey it represents our family and we represent as athletes we represent our coaches and as coaches we represent uh, our athletic director. So we have these ties where our decision making isn't just about us, even though at times we make it about us. Mm. And we have to recognize that when we are in situations which are difficult, we cannot just place it in the situation of what's in the best interest for me or how do I feel right now? But how does this look in the bigger picture? What are other people doing in this situation? How do I resolve this situation in the best interests of my student athletes rather than my own personal gain or welfare? And sports are intense. Emotions run high and situations happen, but it does not necessarily excuse um, the opportunity to act out because of that. It's the ones who don't, who typically get the, maybe the less recognition, but are remembered for the right reasons. And we can remember, you know, you and I grew grew up with tennis in the same era almost, and we can remember players, great player, but Hmm. we don't, we don't want to be that. Dave Mullins, great coach, but. We want Dave Mullins, great coach. The end. And so philosophy and ethics in our in our program isn't necessarily designed to solve 
the ethical problems that exist in, in sports. If we did, we wouldn't have them. It is more to create stud uh, students and who are coaches who are reflective and think before they speak and think before they act, recognizing that their, their actions uh, have a wider impact on more, on more than just themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's one of my favorite classes. We use a book that I, I wrote several years ago with another author called Case Studies in Coaching, where we literally have true stories that happen in sports and how do we resolve them? How do we deal with them? What would you do in this situation? I'm really excited because it was originally written for high school sports. The, the publishers asked us to rewrite it and include college and professional sports as well, which we've done. I tell you, there's a tennis case in there the, that I wrote. And, and so that's coming out this year. So I'm really excited to, to mm. get the new one because it's got a lot of the new some of the new issues that are going on in college sports, NIL, transfer portal, all these things. And again, they're all based on true stories. These things are happening. So how do we prepare for them rather than, oh, I wish I knew. I thought that it was the right thing to do. And then it's too late and we find ourselves fired in court, loss of athlete, loss of revenue or something. Mm. Uh, it really is about trying to avoid those situations yeah well an, another course uh in the master's program is on international perspectives in coaching which i found fascinating obviously as a former international student athlete myself coaching many uh, international student athletes um the fact that you've you've picked up that that this is is happening uh, i think tennis maybe has the most international student athletes or close to it yeah. um, so can you provide maybe again some highlights from this module on how coaches can help transition international student athletes from their home countries to their new life on a campus in the United States? Yeah, that's that's something that uh, I can't answer in three minutes. But the this originally started with an NCAA grant to investigate how we can help, uh, and it. It's something I did primarily with tennis coaches and uh, tennis student athletes, because as you said, large sample of international student athletes in tennis, and we, we did focus groups with them on sure. coaches experiences coaching student athletes from other countries, and then the, the international student athletes themselves, you know, experiences of their coach and, and life in the US and the college in the US. I think the answer overarching answer is coaches have to be thoughtful about where their athlete is coming from and what they need in order to be assimilated into U.S. culture. If a coach has no, has made very little or no effort to learn about the background of that student athlete, then they don't understand their socioeconomic status, their culture, their religion, the foods that they like and don't like, uh, their, maybe even their practice habits, their training habits. And as a consequence, that student athlete has to fit immediately into the, the US mold of this is how we do things. Well, you are an international student athlete. Uh, I have been as well. And this is why we ended up doing the class because my own experiences were 
I was lost when I came to, to North America to be a student. I had no idea what I was doing. And I had to just bumble my way through it. That shouldn't be. There's a better way to do this. And guess what? Not only are we caring for the athlete themselves, they're going to be better at your sport. If I am stable and content and happy and feel cared for in your athletic program, I will play so much better than if I'm stressed about how do I get to classes? How do I communicate with my professors? Uh, I'm not familiar with this training schedule. This is crazy. We don't do it in my country like this, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I miss my parents. I miss my language. I don't understand this culture. I'm not going to play well. No. So if, if I can, if I can uh, tackle that problem, and support my athlete and show I care about their culture and try to integrate them into a multicultural team, I'm going to be, get way more success from them than, than if I just assume they're a U.S. player and treat them accordingly. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this is a tough question to answer again. It's like, how, how long is a piece of string? But how patient should coaches be with this process? And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know, again, I struggled. I, I was a mid-year, so I came in January. I didn't even know what a GPA was. Um, I had no clue. <laughs> you know, in, in Ireland and in, in UK, if you're getting Bs and Cs, you're, you're a pretty good student and uh, didn't know how. I was like, oh, I can get a C here and, and barely show up, uh, not knowing that GPA thing was important. But little things like that, I'm sure I could recall a, a number of instances. And my coach wasn't particularly patient with me that, that first semester. I struggled transitioning from playing on very fast surfaces, grass, synthetic grass, indoor carpet, to now playing on a slow hard court, playing in the rain versus playing in the sun in California. I mean, there's all these things. And, and my coach was really hard on me. And unfortunately, I was able to figure it out by my second semester. But... Um, yeah, how long, how patient should should coaches be and, and how much time, attention, effort? You know, you've got this one international player who's struggling, but you have nine other players who are doing all the right things, have assimilated quickly, are getting on with things, being very productive, et cetera. A any advice in that area? I know it's a tough question to answer. Yeah, you, you said a key word there, fortunately. And that's because you're a very intelligent, hardworking individual who who had was like to stick through it uh, yeah i know you dave i know you uh you've been on my show we've had conversations the unfortunately a lot of those international student athletes okay a lot maybe not fair but they don't make it right they don't make it how long should you give them i i would argue a year you they need a season mm -hmm. to, to find their feet and the first semester for any of us who've been student athletes is, or international student athletes, technically I wasn't a student athlete, I was assistant coach, but I lost. First semester, you're lost. You don't know anything. Second semester, you start to slowly, okay, I kind of think I know what's going on here. So you need that full season. The other thing that is worth mentioning if an international student athlete is over here playing tennis, there's a good chance they're on a pretty good scholarship. Yeah. 
that's enormous pressure for that the international student athlete when other student athletes are not on full scholarships. Mm. They were brought here from Czechoslovakia because they were super talented and they were better than players in the US. Now you've got the pressure of that. The team are aware of it, right? The team know this person's on full scholarship. They're on full ride and they're not playing very well. They're not fitting into the team very well, et cetera. That's a huge amount of pressure on an international student athlete who is supposed to come in and just be amazing from the first, from the first hit of the ball. Right. But you've piled on all these other societal, uh, cultural, and um, educational responsibilities on them without any support. And that's the key. Can they do it? Yeah, they can. But you have to support them. Mm-hmm. You have to support them. And if, if you expect them to just walk in and, and be the, the great player that they were in the Czech Republic, it's probably, probably going to take a while before you see that person again. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the things that, again, might be helpful to coaches at our convention a couple of years ago, we did um, a a panel on inclusion and we were talking about international student athletes as part of that process. And one of the coaches on the panel said that she would go out and buy the flag from the country, the international player was coming over and she put it with all the gear, you know, the t-shirts and shorts and shoes, et cetera, that they give at the start of the season. And I thought that was, that was really cool. Um, Yeah. There's, there's a number of ways that you can make them feel mm-hmm. even just even just group discussions right at, at team meetings and things asking all right yeah. we're gonna go out for for supper as a team you know dave you're from ireland what would you like to eat what do you normally eat in ireland mm-hmm. okay we're all going there yeah right? dave feels important all of a sudden they feel special they, they care about what i eat mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of examples uh, dave um i'll tell you what uh let's let's mix it up on training uh give us an example of something you did in training in in ireland that that we're not doing in the u.s let's Mm. let's work on that today yeah all of a sudden i've made you feel part of of the unit a little bit respecting and and celebrating your culture rather than saying well that's not how we do it here Mm. yeah so it is finding those little things that that make a difference and again it requires effort Mm-hmm. you have to be intentional about this it's it's not going to just naturally come and right. and um yeah there's a variety of things but that th- those are just some examples no those are great examples thank you for sharing um so i know a lot of of gen x coaches uh my my generation who are are probably mid-career right now are, are struggling with relating and coaching Gen Z student athletes. Uh, what of research have you done on this particular topic, if any, and how can Gen X coaches start making some incremental changes to better relate with this generation of student athletes? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have research. I haven't done research on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, when I've done my YouTube show, um, podcast, whatever, it's one of the questions that I ask a lot of coaches. How do you, how do you integrate into your athletes' lives? How do you get to know them? Uh, how do you get to see what they see and embrace what they do without necessarily liking it yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, music is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. There, there is music that I may not like, but that 
doesn't mean that we're only going to listen to what I like when we're practicing or when we're doing our workouts. And, and I've asked, it's a really interesting question, Dave, because I've asked a lot of coaches this and I've never had anybody really give me, okay, here are three things that I do at the beginning of the season or, or whatever that I do. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say this is an area, it's a big hole in, in coaches almost preparation for working with their athletes is they don't really know too much about what their likes or dislikes are. Most will just say, I talk to them at the beginning of the year, or I just talk to them, you know, we just have conversations. It's great. We're having a conversation, but the difference in our conversation right now is it's intentional. You're Mm. trying to learn something from me by having specific questions rather than, Tim, just tell us about what your week was like. Yeah. Well, that's how much are you really going to get about me? You're going to get some things that are going on, sure. So uh, my, my recommendation in this respect is, is be intentional by actually planting questions, by having, there's nothing wrong with having a, a get-to-know-you survey at the beginning of the year or when a freshman comes in, just to find out when, you know, get their birthdays on your calendar, Right. Um, what music do they like? Uh, what kind of food do they like? Um, what do they like to do in their spare time? Uh, what's their favorite movie? Because all of these things, you can make little, little gestures during the season that kind of celebrate that or, hey, uh, so movie of the week on the bus, we're going to, sh- uh, not any, we don't show movies on the bus anymore because everybody's got their phones, but you get the general idea. Uh, Dave really likes this movie. So I brought along with me. We're going to watch it on the way. Wow. He, he knows what I like. Mm-hmm. He's shown an interest in me rather than we're watching this because it's my favorite show from 1970. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where you have to be intentional to learn about your athletes rather than just, I talk to them because mm-hmm. talking to them is important but be more intentional about that get try to get to know them a little better and and then you can facilitate a closer relationship with them because they know you you took an interest in them mm-hmm. and you know that's that's a balance i struggle with to this day i have a 17 year old and the world revolves around him and his world and and um He's a great kid and all the rest of it. I shouldn't be I, I've got that. a almost 17-year-old. I know exactly what you're yeah. talking yeah. about. Yeah, so, so, and we know with these student-athletes, again, whether it's social media, whether it's the way they've been parented, whether it's especially in the world of tennis, just the privilege that's been handed out to them throughout their lives. They haven't maybe faced uh, much adversity. I mean, we throw the word sacrifice around all the time. Um, my son's a high-level soccer player. I'm not sure he's sacrificed, you know. There's different perspectives on that, but, you know, how do you balance that? So you're, you're, you have a new player coming in. You want them again to know how important they are. Hey, I want to learn about you. I want the focus to be on you. And, and, and then they've already come in, they've been recruited. They've been promised all these things. Hey, your experience is going to look like this. We're going to give you that. I'm going to, you know, spend all this time with you and help you become a better tennis player. So we've already got them to that point. 
Now we're going to make it more about them so they make a good transition. And then the first time you maybe have to criticize them or be a little, you know, challenge them in some way, um, they might crumble. Uh, and, 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 and I, you know, maybe there's no difference between the generations. Maybe it's just this is 17, 18, 19 year olds. This is how they've always been for, for many decades. I don't know. But how do you strike that balance between making them feel important, making them feel special, but also having them recognize that they're not as special as they think they are? We're all special in our own, own special way. Is, is how, again, how would you advise coaches on that? Yeah, I, I don't have, again, I don't have the golden answer to this because if I did, my kid would be very different to how he is now. <laughs> uh, the, the, the reality is you have to be consistent. I, I, when you went back to the, the recruiting, you've got to be honest in your recruiting so mm. that they all come in with expectations of you said you would do all this for me and you're not doing it because now we've got a problem, right? Guess what that, that lack of effective communication creates? I just mentioned it earlier. We've got stress now. Right. Because I've got to deal with this problem where he said, she said, or it's not fair, or whatever it is. So be, be real with your expectations. You have to treat everybody as special, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to treat that they get away with what they want. Mm. You love your kid, right? You will do almost anything for them, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they get away with whatever they want. Right. And, and it's, it's that you are important to me, but there's a limit where you can't, you have to follow these rules. Mm -hmm. And I have to follow these rules too. And sometimes, as you well know, discipline is, is because we care. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, do whatever you want. I don't care. No, I don't do that to my kid. No, there, there are rules in this house. And I'm doing these rules to train you to learn that this is important for the rest of your life, to follow rules, to have things in place. Does that mean I don't care about you? No, it means I care about you more because I'm trying to help you for the rest of your life rather than just, I don't know, get you out of my house as fast as possible so that you can have your own career and leave me alone. That's quite harsh if I think about it, but you get the, you get the concept. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and so it is about having rules and abiding by those rules in a, in a loving way where you're putting the best interests of the athlete first. And if those rules, um, those rules should do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, unfortunately, and I could say this with our students too, uh, the average age of our students is probably in their 30s. And we have people up in their 60s in our program. So we have the full gamut of students. But do we have students who come in and with expectations that they should be treated differently? Yeah. Do I? No, I can't. Why? Because it's not fair on every other student. Mm -hmm. I can't allow you to hand in your paper three weeks late when everyone else handed it in on time because you're all working towards the same thing and they did it right and you didn't. So there's consequences. Does it mean that I don't care about you because I'm going to be hard on you? No, it means I care about you because I want you to do it right and learn your lesson. Mm -hmm. If I just let you hand in your paper three weeks late, 
what you have learned a lesson and that it is I'm slack, lax, and don't really care that much mm-hmm. and that you can do whatever you want. So the decisions we make, again, it goes back to that philosophy and ethics, right? The decisions we make really, um, really should be designed to support the athlete in a way that develops them as a person so that they go from your program a better person than when they came in. Mm-hmm. That's a huge responsibility. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, okay, I'm just just pondering that a little bit, but but we'll switch gears a little bit. I might come back to that, but we know the importance of self-reflection for coaches and and there's a lot of research out there and and a lot of literature encouraging coaches to reflect almost daily, you know, especially around practices. Uh, I'm not sure how many coaches are doing it on a regular basis, but I think the majority of coaches at the end of the season do reflect on the year before mm-hmm. and, and what are some of the lessons that, that they've learned? What do they want to do differently next year? How, again, might you encourage coaches to use the summer months? We're coming to an end of the college tennis season. They're going to be gearing up again. College tennis is along. It's two seasons, basically, individual in the fall, team in the spring. And so they've got to turn around and be ready to do it, whether a new group of, of athletes potentially or several new athletes in, in August, and they've just wrapped up at the end of May. So how might they best spend some time reflecting on the previous year and, and really take advantage of that time to be able to regroup, recharge, and then truly apply those lessons the following semester? Yeah, it's a good question. We tend to reflect, as you said, at the end of a season, and and I would encourage coaches to do it a little more often. With a little less, you don't need as much time. Don't spend three weeks reflecting in the summer on your season. Think about how can I do this on a more regular basis and and make it shorter. For example, when I drive to work, and I don't always drive to work, I I work from home because we're online, so I work from home a lot. I don't always drive to work, but when I drive to work, uh, I drive in silence and it's deliberate. I love music. I like listening to music. It's a good escape for me, but but I find that time is an opportunity for me to think. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that very much anymore. We're so busy with stuff, whether it be phone, watching something, working, family. It just our time, our downtime where we're just reflecting doesn't really happen anymore. And so you have to find a time to be able to do that. And for me, it's that drive to work. It's 30 minutes where the, the, the phone is off, the, the music is off, and I can think about things that are going on, things that I need to work on, things that need to get done, etc. And I find that quite useful. We get to the end of the season, and we also need to reflect on the year or the season itself. Sometimes, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get to this in a second, but I would also add to that reflection that you're doing on a regular basis, have something handy that you can write down things because so many good ideas or thoughts come through. And if you're not, if you don't have something handy to just kind of jot it down or, or something to write notes on your phone or whatever it is, they're gone. Especially when you get to our age, 
where it's like, I knew there was something really important that it was a really good idea and I just can't remember what it was. So I have something handy where you can just jot it down and, and make sure you explain what it is because <laughs> I can't tell you, I'll write something down. I'm like, I have no idea what that was. I wish I knew because it was obviously important, but, but have something handy to write things down. But at the end of the season, I'd really recommend coaches talk to somebody about their season and talk to somebody not involved in your program. Don't talk to your athletic director. Don't talk to your head coach. Uh, not about this. Find somebody outside your program. Doesn't even have to be in your sport. Call me. I, I don't care. I coach, coaches do it, especially who've come through our program and they're not in our program anymore. Mm. Uh, because you need a, you need a second, second opinion. You need, you need to run by, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think about that? I got a situation going on with a student athlete and you know I'm not gonna mention their names or anything, but here's what's going on. Uh, what do you think I, I should do in this situation? And that goes back to that stress levels. You, you need that mentor, you need that consultant, you need somebody to just be that, that voice of that doesn't have any any impact in your program. You do that with your athletic director, your athletic director, they're going to be looking at you of, they could leave, they could get fired. Uh, how's this gonna affect my program, my job, et cetera. They're, you can't pull that out of your independent thinking. You just can't. A person outside that program, it doesn't matter to me. If you call me, it doesn't matter to me. I'm gonna tell you what I think. And then you make a decision. So you call me, hey, so we had this season and here's some things that have happened. I'd like to make sure that they don't happen next year. Uh, curious what your thoughts are on, on steps we could take to help that. Mm -hmm. You're gonna get my honest response. You could do this, you could do that, you could do that. That's reflection. And it's reflection by using the advice of other people rather than you trying to solve all the problems yourself. And, and that's dangerous because you only know what you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have to go find what others know too, to get maybe a better picture of, of how you should make decisions or, or where you move forward for the next season. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and uh, coaches are welcome to, to call me as well here at the ITA, the coaches listening to this and, and, uh, like you said, we'll, we'll give honest opinions. We don't have any skin in the game and, and do with it what you please. So, um, okay, well, Dr. Baghurst, this has been, uh, you've just provided so much great information here for our coaches. Can you share with us a little bit more about the coaching program at FSU? If coaches are, are interested in, in signing up for the next term, um, how do they go about that? Where can they learn more? Yeah. Um, FSU Coach is an, it's called the Interdisciplinary Center for Athletic Coaching. It was started four years ago. I was hired to, to come start it. It's the only coach education center in the country. And we began the, the master's two years ago. We made it online because I don't think coaches should have to quit their jobs to get better. I think they should continue doing their job and getting paid rather than rack up debt by, by coming to Tallahassee. So everything we do is online. It is 10 classes. You take the classes when you want. You can enroll in fall, spring, or summer. 
if you're listening to this, chances are you're hearing it in the summer. So July 1 is your deadline to, to apply for the fall. You choose however many classes you want to take. One, two, three, four, it's up to you. So you can get the program done in, in a year, 12 months, or you can get it done in three years. Most people, two classes a semester, you're done in five semesters. Fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, you're done. We, we also designed it from scratch. I, I'm a coach. All our faculty uh, have been or are coaches, and we know what it's like. We know the craziness of schedules. Uh, we know, we just know, we, we live it. So we tried to design it to help in that respect. So one of the things that we developed was ensuring that there's no tests, because I hate, I hate tests. And I would rather you, you read and reflect and write than just regurgitate information you stored for a very short period of time and, and then forgot. We, we also don't require you to be at, on, online at a specific time of day because we have students from, from all over the place, all different time zones, and, and that's not fair. We do have online meets. Like I had a, I had a class last night where half the class showed up for, for the discussion. The other half couldn't make it. They're doing other work. So it's entirely up to you whether you want to be online for that group discussion or not. Uh, again, this is, this is about making this as feasible for coaches as possible. We're rigorous. We have high standards. We are, uh, the, the college is top 15 in the country. The university is top 20 in the country. We, we, we're proud of that. So we, we do have standards. But we also have a, at the moment, a scholarship for the fall for out-of-state students of $12,000. So that really reduces the cost for people who don't live in Florida to make it more comparable to an in-state university but you get to go to a flagship university that, that really carries weight when you get it. So a little about our program, it's a lot of fun. I, I hope, um, I certainly enjoy teaching in it. We, it's been great seeing it grow so quickly and so be part of it. Yeah, well, it's, it, it sounds amazing and I'm sure it'll continue to evolve and just keep getting better as you reflect on it. And yeah. Um, back on the coaches so um and we'll include the links in the show notes so so coaches as you're listening to this and you want to learn more um we'll also link to to some of the other educational materials you're putting out there you've got a newsletter you've got your your youtube podcast show um so we'll include links to all of those so coaches can start catching up on all of it over the over the summer months as they go through their reflection process but thank you again this was a lot of fun. I hope we can do it uh, at some point because I know there's so many different topics uh, we could go into, but uh, we'll leave it there for now. 